All right, how's everybody doing? Woo! Yeah. Man, what a great time of worship together. Amen. Good job. We're well, I'm so glad to be with you guys. You probably have seen me a couple times if you've been going to Everlast uh, for a while. I think the last time I was up here was with the panel with uh, our executive leadership team. And what a cool night it was to be with you guys. And my voice is back, which is the, the good news because I almost lost it that night. But uh, man, God's doing great things here, uh, especially through Everlast, man. Uh, this is a testimony to God's great work here at Calvary Worship Center. And, and man, God's doing cool stuff. Well, the main reason I'm here tonight is mainly to teach the Word of God, which is great news, right? So that's, that's the awesome thing. But the secondary thing that I'm here for tonight is just to let you guys know a little bit about our school of ministry. You're probably like, man, every time this guy comes, he talks about our school of ministry. Well, yes, I do, because I think it's uh, super just important, uh, mainly because our tagline to our school of ministry is equipping the saints. That's really what we do, is we equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and so um, even maybe you're like, man, I'm not feeling the call into ministry or whatever the case may be. Man, we're just sticking to what gospel tells us. The word of God tells us to equip the saints for the ministry. And so ministry could even be, hey, I'm going into my local school. Hey, I'm going to college and I'm ministering to my classmate. That's ministry. Uh, and we equip people for that. And so our school of ministry is starting back up in August. Uh, and so outside, uh, following tonight, uh, I'll be in the Life Center, which is there. You guys sign up for all your cool stuff here at Everlast. But there's just some informational sheets that we do have, uh, as well as just a, a, a form to sign up. Now, you're not signing up to join the school of ministry. You're signing up for our school of ministry registrar just to reach out to you and let you know more about our school of ministry and what we mean by equipping the saints. And so this year, we're adding a couple new classes, such as apologetics. Um, we do church history. We do Old and New Testament survey. We do a lot of stuff. And so if maybe you feel a call that you want to be equipped for the ministry that you are in, whatever the case may be, we'd love for you to begin to pray about becoming part of our school of ministry. And actually, all you got to do is literally put your name, your number, your contact information on that sheet, and we'll do the rest. Uh, we'll send you all the information. We'll contact you, and we'll let you know. And then you get to pray, and we pray with you. And then, if man, if God moves and we all line together, then you can fill out the application. But really, you're not signing up for the school of ministry out there. You're just saying, hey, I would love to receive more information from you guys about the school of ministry. And so we're praying with you um, that you guys would consider that, again, as we equip the saints for the work of the ministry. All right. I'm done talking about School of Ministry. We are going to get into the Word of God. Amen? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for this evening and, and God, what you've already done through worship. And, and Father, and just a reminder, God, of your great work for us and Father, and just how much you love us. And, and God, as we're about to look at uh, an Old Testament uh, story, an Old Testament truth, Father, I pray that you would lead tonight. Father, that it would be of you, not of me. And uh, Father, we just thank you that we have a place like this to come and, uh, Father, worship and, and be amongst friends and, and family. And so, God, I just pray you move this evening. Guide us, lead us, and direct us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you do have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to go through the whole book tonight, but I'm not going to go verse by verse. We're going to really go chapter by chapter, which is good news, because if I went verse by verse through all Ruth, we'd be here till next month. 
uh, but we're not going to do that tonight. Uh, but we're gonna, we are going to go through uh, this book, these four chapters within Ruth. And, and so as we're looking at this Old Testament story, I want you to, when I say story, I want you to maybe put in there uh, history. And so when I say that, I mean God's story. This is a historical book. Uh, when we talk about history within the Bible, we look at God's story. What has God done throughout history? And we're going to look at a, a story of love. We're going to look at a story of love tonight. And I'm, you know, and uh, man, we we've just over history. There's been great, awesome movies that have been kind of either uh, done since we were kids. And you know, when I was kids, it was the Disney princess movies were always kind of the the hip story of love. You had your Cinderella, you had your Ariel, you had all these amazing stories of love. Now. When we look at them now, when you get older, you realize, well, that was just a fairy tale. Love really doesn't look like that sometimes. And then as we kind of grew up, they became rom-coms, right? We have our romantic comedies, and they're a little bit more honest to the truth in the aspect of love. But what I really think we're going to find here in Ruth is a story of love that we can really relate to. And we're really going to see why, because it's, it's a story of love with three main focuses, and there is a fourth, and I'm going to get to that here in a little bit. But I just kind of want to give you an intro to really what's going on right now as we're looking at the historical text of Ruth, of this Old Testament story. Well, what we need to go on is, or what we need to understand is, well, where are we? Where are we in the time frame? And so there's this other book in the Bible called Judges. Uh, and that that book is, you're like, man, it's just right there. It's to your left, right? And so this book of Ruth, just for you guys have to understand, happens during the time of the book of Judges. So it's a story within the Old Testament book of Judges. So that's kind of where we land. And what's going on in the time of Judges is really Judges can be characterized by moral decline. And so when we look at what was going on in the history of the people of Israel, their morality was declining, a lot, and, and really the reason that that was is because Judges is known for a time where everybody was doing what they pleased, what they wanted. They didn't really care for the things of God. They just kind of operated under their own strength, their own thoughts, their own will. And so that's where we're kind of at. That's where we're landing here in this book. And so also what we're going to be focusing on is um, just the beginning here in Ruth chapter 1. If you'll just read with me in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 1. It says, Now it came about the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. So I want us to stop real quick right there. So what I want us to understand about famine, when we see it within the, in the Bible, it is this. Famine is a representation, or it's actually God's promised chastisement for disobedience. And so when you see famine, especially in the Old Testament, with dealing with the people of Israel, it is God's promise, chastisement for their disobedience. Now, he didn't promise this in going, hey, I'm just going to do this. He says, hey, look, God has been very clear, has delivered warning signs to the people of Israel. If you remain disobedient, disobedient, there will be a time of famine. And that's what's going on. As we look in Judges, as people were doing things just as they pleased, God delivers a famine in the time of Judges. So that's where we are, where it says right here. And then it goes on to say, And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah 
went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of this man was Elimelech. Now, um, so I'm just going to kind of give you, so during the family, he's like, hey, I'm going to take my family, and we're going to leave Bethlehem, and we're going to go into this land of Moab. Now, one thing you can write, and this is just kind of something just to really punch home what Bethlehem is in, in the midst of famine, is Bethlehem, when it's translated, means fruitfulness. And so as Elimelech is, is understanding in this difficult time that there's, there's, there's famine, there's disobedience, he's like, we're going to get away. But he's leaving Bethlehem, that's titled fruitfulness, and, and going to a place called Moab. So he leads his family from this place of fruitfulness into the land of, of death. And we're going to see that in just a second. But also what we're going to see in chapter 1, as we're looking at this love story, is we're beginning to begin to see this authentic love. And that's what I said when we look at love stories, we, we watch the movies, we read the books, and we go, well, well those are great, but I, th- those sometimes are just fairy tales. Sometimes those are really outside the concept of what we view as love. But what we're about to see is an authentic love here in chapter 1. And so what we also need to understand about where Elimelech took his family is, again, to the place of Moab. Now, I want to just give you some historical perspective about well, what has the Bible said about the Moabites, the people that lived in the area. Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, Moses gives direction about the Moabites just because they were always near the people of Israel. And he says that they were not allowed to be received into the congregation of the Lord to the 10th generation. Now you're like, well, Pastor Shea, what the heck did you just say? Well, what was going on is, is Moses was instructing the people and giving clear direction that if the people of Israel chose to marry a Moabite woman, that even their sons couldn't enter the place of worship for 10 generations, so 10 children. Um, and, and so that's just really un, important to understand that this is where they're going. This is where they're heading. They're heading to a place where um, the reason, the main reason is the Moabite people would have been your pagan worshipers. They have, would worshiped other gods. But what I want us to realize here, as I told you, as Elimelech left where God had begun the famine, and, and, but he named the, the area Bethlehem, the place of fruitfulness, and he leaves and takes his family to a place of death. And we'll see why it's called that in just a second. I want to encourage you in something. That you and I, when we're living in, in our modern day, in our modern time, what happens is that there sometimes becomes a famine in our personal relationship. Because just as God promised the people of Israel, they're saying like, hey, if you remain disobedient, a famine is coming. When we look at the New Testament and we see when most people generally had something going on in their life, a famine sort of spiritually, it's because they were, they were separated from their relationship with God. And what usually happens when you and I, when we get into a place of when we're separated from our relationship with God, we begin to get distracted, just like Elimelech did. 
we begin to get distracted. And what happens is, as we become distracted in difficult times, we make bad decisions. When we're actually in a place where God wants us to be. And just as Elimelech could have stayed in Bethlehem and could have realized that he's in the place where where God's hand is moving, there's disobedient people, but God's hand is moving because he's named this place fruitfulness. But you see, you guys are in a place where God is moving. You're in a community where God is doing great things. Yet what happens, what's the tendency to happen for all of us is that even as we're walking in the place of fruitfulness, and you can just kind of semi-title that Everlast just for a second, that you guys are walking in a really healthy community where you have solid worship and solid biblical teaching, (coughs) excuse me, yet you can have a famine in your life when it comes to your relationship with God. And you know what your tendency is going to be? is to flee to Moab. To flee where the pagan worship is going on. To remove this from your life. Instead of staying and going through the difficult time with your community, knowing that God's hand is upon it. So I want to encourage you this very night as we look at this love story that we can really relate to this. We're all very similar, even to the Old Testament characters. We've all been there. We've all had a spiritual famine in our life, and and we just feel like the necessity to remove ourselves from what God's hand is on. But let me encourage you, whatever area in spiritual life that you are in, even if there's a famine in your life, you don't feel close to God. Stay here. Stay connected. Don't go to Moab. So we're going to read the the rest of the text here. And then it goes on to say, and this is where uh, we're going to realize why was this place called the place of death. Well, here it is. Um, He goes on to say, and and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Shilion. They were uh, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Okay, so he's dead. And, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves the Moabite women as wives. The, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malone and Shalon also died. Okay, so husband dies, both sons die, the place of death. Okay, that's where we're at. Uh, then, then we go on, and, and she says, uh, okay, uh, and the women were bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and, sh- and that she might return from the land of Moab, for she, this is a great part of this, had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So we're going to stop right there for just a second. So I've given you, okay, they went to Moab. It was the place of death. And then all of Naomi's husbands, her sons have died, and then she hears of God's provisions for his people. Now, I want to encourage you guys with something. That very thing, God's provision for his people, this is a characteristic of God we see throughout the Bible. 
that even in the midst of the famine, God continues to provide for his people. Here's some scriptural evidence of that. Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, and Psalm 65, 3. Those are there for you to reference later. But I want you to understand that the God that we talk about absolutely 100% provides for his people. Even in the midst of famine, even in the midst of their disobedience, God's grace and favor is always upon the people when they repent and cry out. So if you have famine in your relationship with God, his hand of, of grace is still upon you. He doesn't leave you in your state. But when we see God begin to respond to his people is when they repent and cry out. Not get their life right. They repent and cry out. They realize who God is and that he's holy. And they say, no longer do I want to rebel, but I want to be under your will. And so what is our response tonight? If we have famine in our life personally with God, repent and cry out. It's the response that's been happening since the Old Testament. And I would encourage you, don't think yourself greater than these Old Testament people. Repent and cry out. Because God is always providing, always brings provisions for his people. And then we go on within the text and it says this, so she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you and your people. Then Naomi said this, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And so right here what we see is, is a cry of discouragement from Naomi. Think about it. Naomi's cry of discouragement came from and was from a place of emptiness. Because, again, her husband took her from her home. And then her husband and her sons died. And she becomes bitter and empty. And, and she really realizes as she has a relationship with her daughters-in-law that she doesn't want them to be subjected to the life that she's living. Are you like Naomi tonight? Are you currently in a time of bitterness and are you just completely empty? Because what I mean by that is we're going to see here in a second is this, it says, following along in verse 14, it says, And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people 
and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Are you currently in that state of like Naomi? That as you were in your, your, your time of famine from the Lord, things begin to happen. Maybe it wasn't your, your husband dying or your son's dying, but maybe something happened in the time of famine, and you're very bitter, and you're very empty. Sometimes that can happen. But what we're going to see shortly is an authentic love that I believe God had, in, had begun to work in Naomi's life to restore her from this place. And mainly we begin to see that in Ruth's reply to her when she says, go, go be back, go, go leave, go with your sister-in-law. But Ruth's reply shows the first aspect of authentic love. You see... During Naomi's discouragement, Ruth commits to the hardship of the relationship. She commits to it. She says, no, I'm not leaving you. Where you go, I'll go. Your God's going to be my God, and the only thing that will separate us is death. I don't know if you guys have a friend like this, but I have a friend like this. It's my wife. Like, it's the only thing that's going to separate us is death. Well, well, the good news is that when we both die, we're going to be with Jesus because I firmly believe that because we both have an intimate relationship with him. But that's really the only thing that's going to separate us on others. And believe me, I've tried. I've been the worst husband on the worst of days, and she still sticks with me. That is that she is my best friend. And once you get married, you'll see that. If you're already married, you kind of understand what I'm saying. But maybe you're not married. Do you have that friend? Have you ever been blessed by the loyalty of another person? It's authentic. It's not fabricated. When you go through hard times and that person sticks with you, you really begin to understand the authentic love that we're talking about right now. That's why these fairy tale stories sometimes don't do justice. That you watch them in, in uh, these movies, in the instance of anything happening, that, that love that they said that they have for one begins to break, begins to shatter all these things. You know, one of my favorite, um, you know, bro movies and, is Step Brothers. You, you guys have seen it? It's a great movie. And we see at the, at the beginning, they're both kind of upset that they have to come into this new family. And then they both begin to bond. And they be, begin to have this great love for one another. But then we see the simplest of things separate them. But the great news at the end of it, they come together. And you begin to see their authentic love for one another. Of course, that's a movie. But 
You know what I'm saying? You understand the idea and the thought of having that, that friend that will stick around with you. You see, authentic love stays around when times get tough. But even as we look here, as Naomi returns, she's a Debbie Downer. You see, Naomi, Naomi correctly recognized something, and here it is. And, and Barry C. Davis said this about this text. Is Naomi correctly recognized that God did not necessarily bring only good situation into one's life, but that he at times brought difficult ones. To say that again, Naomi here within this text is realizing something so important about God, and I hope you guys realize this too, is that God did not necessarily bring only good situations. Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe you've been in churches and all they preach is God is going to bring good things to happen to you. You're going to be blessed if you give. You're going to be blessed if you live this life. I'm about to tell you something different. Because we actually have a historical text that tells the truth. That God, at times, doesn't bring just only good situations into one's life, but at times he, uh, he brings difficulty. Well, why? Why would God do that? I'm about to tell you. It's really important to your belief in God. Here it is. In God's word... In God's very truth, his word, not mine, in God's word, difficulties are understood to be for the purpose of testing or discipline. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12 say this, My son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord. I'm going to stop right there. Are you guys despising God correcting you? Don't. He says, nor detest his correction. But look what it says next. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. I love that. If you're afraid of the Lord's correction, don't be. Because it's actually his love for you. God doesn't leave you in a state of famine. He brings difficulties in your life. He brings things in your life in order that you would, just as the prodigal son, and we see in the New Testament, would return to the Father. God is not only bringing good situations, but at times he brings difficulties. He brings correction. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11 says this, If you endure chastising, God deals with you as with sons. For what, what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And let me tell you, I have a son, and I have to. But it's because I love him. Just as I have seen God chastise me, because he loves me. But it goes on to say in Hebrews here, but if you are without chastising, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. We see this all the time. 
shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastise us, speaking of earthly fathers, and as seemed best to them. But he, speaking of God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastising seems to be joyful for the present. I love the truth of that. But painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What does this text tells us? And Proverbs, do not despise the chastising of the Lord. Because when we, at the beginning, even though it may be unpleasant, painful, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are disciplined by it. That's why God brings difficulty to correct you, to not leave you in your state of famine. It's important to understand. It's actually vital to your walk with God. You can't remove it. You can't just say, well, I don't like that thing that God does. So my God, he doesn't do that. It, let me tell you something. It doesn't matter that you think that God doesn't do it. He does it. And if you can't get your mind around it, you're in a difficult spot. He does it because he loves you. He doesn't leave us in the state that we are in. So when you go through times of famine and then God brings difficulty in your life, know that he's doing it out of love to bring you back to him because he loves you. You are his child. The second thing that we see here is in chapter 2. And I know I flew through chapter 1, but I told you we're not going to go verse by verse. We're, We're going through chapter. The second thing is confirming love. Here we go in verse in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field, after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So we're going to stop right there for a second. So what, what's good to see about Boaz, and again, I would love to go in depth about Boaz, but I'm just kind of doing an overview of him. Is the first thing that we see about Boaz here is he actually valued knowing who Ruth was. It was, it was an important characteristic of Boaz. You know, you know he, he's kind of overseeing his field, and he notices this new worker, and he, he, he greets his fellow managers. He said, hey, may God bless you. They say, may God bless you. He's like, who is that? He wants to know who she was. You see, Boaz, sorry, Boaz was a kind, compassionate protector. That's who he was. So this, we, we, we begin to see that here in him. Now, we'll, we'll go on. And it says this, um, The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. 
And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now, and she has begun sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with the maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from them. Drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? We're going to stop right there for a second. Now, what I want us to see is a lot of times when we, we come into church, we hear, like, Pastor Shea, I thought we're not supposed to bow to anybody. But during this time, as we see Ruth, it's just a sign of respect. It's not that she's bowing down to him as her Lord. It's, it's very customary during that time to, to bow to show respect. So I just want us to get over that because I know we could battle it. No, she's just showing respect, okay? Um, but what, what, what's important here we see in verse 11 is this, is Ruth here, as she's having this conversation with Boaz, thought that she was foreign to him. But what's important here to see is that he knew all that she had done. And did you guys know that that is a great character of God? Because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, it says this, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You see, when we have authentic love that, that stems from a relationship with God, our authentic love will be confirmed by others. It will be. It'll be known. Your character will speak for you when words don't. Well, how do we know this? Well, in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 2, it says this, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. You see, what the report had come back from uh, to Boaz about Ruth was that all that she had done, she had stayed with Naomi for this really difficult time that she committed to this authentic love and then we see a, a new relationship being built with Ruth that she's realizing that her authentic love is being confirmed by Boaz. And we also are beginning to see that, that Boaz's love for God is being confirmed here. And now we're going to continue on. It says this in, in verse 11, But Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to, the, to a people that you do not previously know. Now verse 12 is really important. I'll explain why. It says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now, a lot of the times when we actually read the Bible, what we have a tendency to do is think that this is a love story between Ruth and Boaz. But really what we need to remember in verse 12 reminds us of is, guys, is hear this. This is really God's love story. This is really God's story of redemption. And we're going to see why as we close out in verse chapter 3 and 4. 
that we can't be confused here and think like, oh, God gave us this great story of love. This is actually God's redemptive love story for us. That what God is doing here, what his hand is upon, we actually, in history, as we look in a second, we actually receive a benefit from what's about to happen. That this is God's redemptive love story for you and for me and for Ruth and for Boaz and for Naomi. This is God's story, guys. This is not theirs. They are just partakers of God's great work. And then we go on. In verse 13, she says, Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. And what she was directing to, again, was she was a Moabite woman. They worship pagan gods, but she was committing to, uh, again, be a part of Naomi's faith, to, to be a part of her God. But he's treating her as if she was already just like his other servants. Did you guys know something? And I want to challenge you with something. Again, remember, the people of Israel, right? God's chosen people. Again, Elimelech takes them to Moabite. They married Moabite women and they come back. Did you actually know something? Here it is. Pagan people, even though they're outside of the church building or maybe outside of Everlast, did you know that God's still speaking to them? Did you know that pagan people, you know, we might look at them and go, they're just wicked. But here's the truth, and actually we see this in Romans, that we're all wicked. But God still loves pagan people so much. And we see this great work being done. That pagan people, those outside of Everlast or those in your college or those in outside of the world, that maybe there's a Ruth out there. That maybe walk in here and she's following some person. She's just developed a relationship. And she's like, look, I'm going to follow you. You're Jesus. He's going to become part of mine. I'm going to make him my Lord and Savior. I'm going to follow you. And nothing's going to separate us. Imagine if, if God is, is, is doing that here in the Old Testament. And we see him do it in, in, in the New Testament. I want to encourage you. God's work did not stop ever. He's continually doing this. Why? His absolute love for his creation. He loves us. That's what's so important about this story. And now we have seen, again, this love. And we're going to go into the noble love. I'm, I have to fly through this because I really got to get to the good part. The third thing is noble love. Chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to, her, said to her, her daughter, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whom maids you were? Behold, he winnows barely in threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself therefore and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. So I'm going to have to stop right there. Look, so Naomi gives this request, this scandalous request to Ruth. And if you read ahead, you'll see. She tells her, clean up. 
He's going to be working, but, but at night he's going to rest. And, and she says, get yourself all washed up, put perfume on, wear your best clothes. And then she uses this term here called uncover his feet. And you'll be like, that's an interesting term. Why is it scandalous? Well, it's scandalous because it didn't really mean uncover your feet. And, and there's some reference text I'm going to give you here in just a second. But it meant just kind of like the inner thigh. She says, go lay yourself near his inner thigh. And where we see uncover his feet, just some reference text. It's 1 Samuel 24, verse 3, and Isaiah 6, verse 2. And the same word here in Hebrew means that. It's this inner thigh. So when we look at noble love, here's what noble love does. Noble love endures risky situations. You see, not only did Naomi give this request, but Ruth's response was a noble love, and Boaz's response was a noble love unto the Lord. So some of us think like we, we, we can't be noble in, in, in scandalous situations. You can be. That because if we read the rest of this chapter, we see that she goes and she places herself near her, and, and Boaz is like, who are you? And she begins to describe who she is. And, and then we actually see Boaz encourage her that she did not pursue young men, rich or poor. And then we see a lot of things. She says, hey, Boaz, spread your cloak over me. Now, we might think, well, they're about to get a little bit frisky, but that's not what it was. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, this term is actually to show a representation of a covenant beginning to happen. That he is beginning to, she's asking, make a covenant with me as my kinsman redeemer. This wasn't an invitation for, for sexual activity, but yet a covenant to begin by entering a covenant. You see, What's important to understand is the noble character of Boaz led to this. He actually encourages Ruth to stay in that place tonight, not for them to, to, to hang out, but for this reason. As we, I told you earlier in the time of Judges, everybody was doing everything that they wanted. And you can reference Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It was for her safety. He says, stay here. Be safe. Rest overnight. And even though this invitation comes, Boaz also addresses Ruth and says, "This look, I can't do anything. I can't come into this covenant with you because there is an actual other kinsman and redeemer that comes before me. You see, noble love, even though this invitation is from Ruth and, and, and Boaz is beginning to have feelings for her, you see, noble love, it endures a risky situation because Boaz here in his noble love, he honors God's law. Boaz had noble love for God. See, Boaz must do that for which God has said. A lot of us say that we have love for God, but we don't endure risky situations. And then we go on, and what's important about this if you look at verse 18, Ruth has told Naomi all these things, and this is what Naomi tells her. She says, then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how this matter turns out, 
for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. You see, guys, noble love for God means we can wait. Ruth must wait. Boaz must wait. Boaz must respond to God's law. Maybe you find yourself in a relationship, and man, there's just all this offering coming your way. Perfect guy, perfect gal. But what must we do? What is noble love? To wait on the Lord. To wait till that day, just as we were at Ellen Duriel's wedding, where, where the, you know, maybe it's Pastor Mark or Kevin, and, and you're, you're just waiting to that day where, 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 where like, all of the, the, the ceremony, and it's like, you can kiss your bride, and waiting for that day. Why? Not so you can do the, okay, I, I did this, I checked this, but really what that was, what we saw at Ellen Duriel's wedding, was them honoring God plain and simple, flat out. Because they went through our school of ministry, and I said, okay, well, I have this, like, interesting dating policy, and going, like, look, if you're dating, it causes some conflict, but I said, look, I know you guys like each other, but here's my one stipulation. You must get accountability partners, people you're meeting with. And that Pastor Shea, he's mean. No, because here's the thing. I want to see that you can honor God. Some of us just think that we can do whatever we want. Yet God is saying, no, wait. Wait. Honor me. Honor my law. What is Naomi? Ruth, you've got to wait. You see, noble love keeps us obedient. It keeps us obedient. And the final thing that we're going to look at in chapter 4 is an everlasting love. And now we roll into the marriage. You see, everlasting love is patient and has order. You see, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So let's stop there. So what's going on is Boaz is being a man of his word. He reaches out to the person who can first and foremost redeem this family as the first kinsman and redeemer. And he explains everything is going on. He waits for him. He calls him out. He brings witnesses. You see, what he's doing is he's respecting God. He's respecting what God has put in order. You see, Boaz had this everlasting love that was patient and had order to it. There was respect and honor. It's everlasting because here's the thing. This kinsman redeemer said, he could have said, he actually at the beginning says, sure, I'll buy that land. But then what happens is Boaz says, well, with it comes Ruth. And then we learn that this kinsman redeemer says, it would actually cause me to break my covenant. So he goes, you know what? Boaz, you do it. And we're going to see this thing is that this everlasting love in its patience and in its order restores the brokenhearted. 
Well, how do we know that? Well, let's read the text. After the close row says, Boaz, you buy this. Okay, so he goes on and says, Moreover, I have required Ruth the Moabitess and to the widow of Malon. Oh, this sorry, this is verse 10. To be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on her heritage, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are my witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom build the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathoth and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you to this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, now again, this is Naomi, right? Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than the seven sons has given birth to him. I'm going to stop right there. You see, when I say the everlasting love restores the brokenhearted, remember what Naomi said? Don't call me Naomi. I am empty. I am bitter. You see, with everything coming to fruition... Naomi receives a blessing. You see, God restored Naomi through her grandchild. Well, how is this love everlasting? How is it that God restored Naomi through her grandchild? Well, let me tell you who her grandchild was. It was Obed. Now, if you're like, Pastor Shea, I don't know who the heck Obed is. Well, Obed was Jesse's father, and Jesse's son was David. You see, Obed is the grandfather. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Naomi is in this perspective. Uh, sorry, Obed is the grandfather to the earthly lineage of Jesus. You see, as Naomi returns to the land of fruitfulness, Bethlehem, God restores her. Someone who is empty. Someone who is bitter. Are you an empty and bitter tonight? Do you need to return to God, and simply all you have to do is repent and call out. Because here's the thing. Did you know that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer? You see, Warren Wiersbe says this about a, a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. He says, a kinsman or a family redeemer rescues their family from poverty and, and gives them a new beginning. If you didn't listen to anything I said tonight, let me tell you this again. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He is rescuing you from the poverty of ultimate death and giving you a new beginning of life everlasting. Well, where do we find this? Did Pastor Shea make this up? The good news is no. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says this, and listen up. If you guys have ignored everything you've ever heard and ever last, listen to this scripture because it should change the way you live. It says, for you, speaking of all of us, were bought at a price. Well, what was that price? God's one and only perfect son. You and I, we were all bought with that price. And it says this, therefore, it, it didn't end there. It says, for, for you were bought with a price, now just go and live the way that you want. 
It says, look, and we have to get real with what this text is about to say. It says, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You guys, we can't ignore this anymore. You were bought with a price, and his name is Jesus. We just celebrated on Easter. Like, Easter wasn't for us to put on our nice outfits and come to church and sit up here and, and go, yay, Jesus is right. Like, literally, it, it was a really rough day on Good Friday. And the reason we celebrate Easter is we're acknowledging we were bought with a price and that death is overcome. And there's an everlasting love that is changing our lives forever. And our response isn't just to sit there in our seats and go, I'm not going to do anything about it, but to receive Jesus and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Because here's the thing of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, For he, speaking of Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's what we were rescued from, the domain of darkness. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That is what God did for you. Through this payment... He rescued us. He became our family redeemer of the domain of darkness. Remember the domain of death that the Moabites in Moab, you see, Jesus, by God working, rescued us from this. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe this? Are you in famine? Maybe you've never accepted Christ. Now, again, remember I told you, well, this is a love story and it's God's love story because in, in, back in the Old Testament, God said, I'm bringing a Messiah. And we begin to see that through what God did here, it was his love story for us.